Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On January 18th, 1984, an 86-year-old patient at the Port Ran Asylum in North County Dublin passed away. Edward Murray had spent nearly half his life effectively incarcerated in mental institutions after he developed a mental illness decades earlier. Suffering from delusions and hallucinations, he had attacked a friend in the early 1940s, but after he was committed to Grange Gorman Asylum in 1944, his condition deteriorated. Diagnosed with paraphrenia, he was deemed incapable of looking after himself. In 1940s Ireland, this was effectively a prison sentence and Edward would spend the rest of his long life in the asylum system. In 1955, he was moved to Port Ran and there he lingered, decade after decade, more or less forgotten by the wider world. When he died in his mid-80s, a few weeks short of the 40th anniversary since he had first entered the asylum system, few, if any, realised or cared about the role he had played in the Irish War of Independence. Indeed, he was probably one of the thousands buried in unmarked graves in the cemetery attached to Port Ran Asylum. However, Edward Murray had once been a celebrated figure in the Irish Republican movement and had rubbed shoulders with some of the most famous figures in Irish history in the 20th century. Indeed, events he had been centrally involved in as a young man had set the stage for the Irish War of Independence. It could even be argued an unsettling murder he had committed had in fact been the opening encounter of the war. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is part three of the Irish War of Independence series. Today we'll be focusing on a part of the story that's often overlooked in popular narratives of the war, the slow descent into conflict. While an ambush at Solahed Beg in Tipperary in January 1919 is usually considered as the opening shots of the war, this episode looks at the violence that was breaking out in Ireland as early as 1917. Additional research in the episode was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. And the artwork for this series is by Keith Hines. This series is funded by listeners on Patreon. As a patron of the show, 
you get access to ad-free versions of each podcast, episode guides, and then next week, I'll be hosting the first Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley, the Assistant Professor in 20th Century History at Trinity College Dublin. Now, these Q&As with Brian are exclusively available for patrons only. You can participate in this by signing up today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Lots of you have been in touch with great feedback on the posters from the revolutionary period available in the shop. They give a great sense of time and place. You can check them out yourself at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. In terms of this episode, you'll be particularly interested in the volunteers recruitment poster that's available there at the moment. Finally, as usual, don't forget to check out my socials. They're Irish History, all one word, on Instagram and Twitter. I've been posting pictures of people who feature in each episode there. It's a great way to get a sense of the figures being discussed in the series as we move through the war. Edward Joseph Murray was born into a working class family in the inner city of Dublin on July the 24th, 1897. Even with his parents' combined income, his father was a blacksmith and his mother a clothes dealer, the family struggled. Edward was raised in various different tenements between the corn market and the coom, the family of six sharing two rooms if they were lucky. In this substandard housing, the Murrays suffered disproportionately from the hardships poverty inflicted on all working class families. By 1911, his mother Mary had given birth to nine children since her marriage in 1894. However, five had not survived childhood. Despite, or perhaps because of these difficulties, Edward was politically active through his teenage years. In 1911, still only 15 years of age, he had joined Nafiana Ehren. Founded by Constance Markovich, this organisation trained teenagers in military drills to prepare them to fight for Irish independence. Over the following years, Edward became a committed member of the organisation. At the age of 20, he was something of a veteran of the Republican movement having served a short prison sentence in 1914. During Easter week, he armed himself with a revolver and had fought in the Rising. Although he was arrested with the other rebels at the end of the revolt, he only served a month in prison before being released. In the months following his release, the Republican movement that had been central to his life was in tatters. Large numbers of activists were in prison in Britain, and those like Edward, who were at large in Ireland, did little to attract attention. However, towards the end of 1916, initial steps to rebuild the military arm of the Republican movement, the Irish volunteers had already begun. In November, 50 volunteers had gathered in Fleming's Hotel on Gardner Street in Dublin to reorganise the movement. This meeting established a provisional committee under the leadership of Cahal Brewer, a legendary veteran of the Rising, who walked with a distinct limp from the serious wounds he had sustained during the rebellion. Under his leadership, the reorganised volunteers established contact with parts of the country not represented at the gathering. A month after this initial meeting, the British authorities released 600 volunteers in December 1916 and these men, hardened by their experiences in the Frongok prison camp, helped strengthen the movement as it reorganised itself. During this period, Edward Murray threw his energies into reorganising Nafiana that had nurtured his early years in the Republican movement. As a senior figure of the organisation in Dublin, he led younger members in activities such as drilling and marching, often using wooden hurls instead of guns. This work was essential for the wider movement because, as the Irish volunteers expanded, his youth organisation, Nafiana, provided them with a growing pool of ready recruits. 
Therefore, through early 1917, Edward was centrally involved as the wider Republican movement re-emerged and began growing rapidly. It's worth remembering that the reorganisation of the military arm of the movement, the Volunteers, was taking place in the context of the rapid growth of Sinn Féin, who, as we saw in the last episode, enjoyed several election victories that year. As they expanded, the Volunteers began to take the shape of an army modelled on formal military structures. As it spread across the country, each parish formed a company. Several parishes then grouped together in a battalion, and then several battalions formed a brigade. The experience of Michael Deneen from Lyre outside Clonakilty in County Cork gives a sense of the energy and confidence of these months. The strength of the company was gradually increased by the acceptance of selected men, who were usually vetted by the officers before being invited to join. While strengthening our own units, we also visited neighbouring areas on organising tours, establishing units. Training in close-order foot drill and arm drills with shotguns and wooden guns was carried out in the fields. Towards the end of 1917, we held several public parades and route marches to the neighbouring companies. While the early months of the year saw the volunteers lend their support in the pivotal by-election campaigns featured in last week's episode, they were also focused on other, more militant activities. Indeed, in June 1917, they faced a stern test when a planned demonstration in support of Irish Republican prisoners in English jails was banned by the authorities. This set the stage for a major confrontation. For a militaristic organisation like the Volunteers, backing down was not an option. On June 10, 1917, they defied the order in events that led to the most serious clashes Dublin had witnessed since the Easter Rising. These would alter the course of Edward Murray's life. Despite the fact their planned meeting in support of the prisoners on June 10th had been prohibited under the Defence of the Realm Act, Republicans in Dublin pushed ahead with plans for a major public demonstration demanding free speech with several high-profile speakers. These included Count Plunkett, who had won the first of the four by-elections that year in Roscommon. He was joined on the platform by Cahill Brewer, the 1916 veteran. In advance of the event, Many anticipated confrontation with the police and Edward Murray prepared himself for such an eventuality by bringing along a hurl. However, no one could have envisaged what ultimately transpired. The newspaper, the Dublin Daily Express, provided evocative details of what happened that fateful day. Count Plunkett MP and others attended Beresford Place for the purpose of holding a meeting protest against the suppression of free speech. Count Plunkett and Cahalbrua drove from the direction of Berg Key on a hackney car and were followed by a crowd of about 3,000 people cheering. At Burrisford Place, when it was apparent that the intention was to address the crowd, Inspector Mills, who was present with a number of constables, interfered and, according with the proclamation, endeavoured to stop the meeting. Inspector Mills informed the occupants of the car that they must not hold a meeting there. At this point, the situation deteriorated. Inspector Mills hauled Count Plunkett from the carriage. This incensed the crowd. Not only was Plunkett a man in his late sixties, but as the father of Joseph Mary Plunkett, he was one of the executed leaders of the 1916 Rising and was a revered figure. The report continued. A very exciting scene ensued with the crowd protesting, gesticulating and shouting and becoming hostile in their demeanour that it was necessary for the police to disperse them. 
When the arrests were made, stones were thrown. A young man who took up a prominent position in the car waved a Republican flag. This was taken from him by the police and resulted in another exciting scene. A man who was prominent in the disturbance attempted with a weapon resembling a dagger to stab a constable and he was arrested. Superintendent with reserve force of police from Store Street arrived and compelled the crowd retire in the direction of Buttbridge and Eden Key. In the meantime, Inspector Mills, who, with some policemen, was conveying Count Plunkett and Cahalbrua to Store Street Police Station, was, when crossing under the railway bridge, struck with some heavy instrument on the back of the head and rendered unconscious. It is feared that his skull was fractured. He was conveyed to Jervis Street Hospital and an operation was found to be necessary. Having regard for his age, slight hopes are entertained for his recovery. Meanwhile, Mills was removed to hospital through a city that was quickly descending into riots and chaos. Another outbreak occurred, resulting in a conflict between the police and the vicinity of Redmond's Hill. It would appear that a crowd of some 200 persons assembled at the junction of George Street and Angier Street, and upon the arrival of four police they retired in the direction of York Street, throwing stones all the time. The stones broke several valuable plate glass windows. At this time, a posse of police under Inspector Barrett arrived and at once succeeded in dispersing the mob. One young man was arrested and will be charged with participating in a riot. It was stated that some persons occupied the roofs of some houses adjoining. A search for them was made by the police, but without result. While journalists, by and large, blamed Republicans for starting the riots, they were not an impartial source. The truth of what happened that day lay somewhere between the police version of events and that of Republicans. However, one aspect was without doubt. When Inspector John Mills had attempted to arrest Count Plunkett, he had been struck with a hurl and knocked unconscious. The person who had wielded the hurl was the 20-year-old Edward Murray. While he managed to escape the scene, he was a wanted man. Dozens, if not hundreds, had seen him carry out the act. The police would soon begin rounding up others who had been at the protest and either a witness or even a police informer in the Republican movement, of which there were many, would identify Edward. Meanwhile, in Jervis Street Hospital, Mills was in a grave condition. His skull was fractured from the back of his head to his forehead. Surgeons operated on him, however, they could not save his life and he would die the following day. For Edward Murray, this made a very serious situation even worse. If captured, a judge would in all likelihood sentence him to death for the murder of a policeman. However, the resurgent Republican movement now swung into action, employing its extensive network of sympathisers, activists and safe houses, which would become central during the War of Independence, to hide Edward. As he was moved from house to house, women in the movement played a central role in these activities. Maeve Kavanagh, a Dubliner and a member of the Irish Citizen Army, later talked about how she helped move Edward. I was asked to take charge of a wanted man and bring him to another house. We did all we could to alter his appearance and I brought him safely to the house. Anya Kjant, whose husband Damon had been executed after the 1916 Rising, remembered her sister, Lily, helping Edward as well. She had scarcely taken her tea when a message came that she was wanted to take charge of the Fina boy who did his deed and that she was to bring him to a place of safety. She took charge of the Fina boy and linked him along. These women helped smuggle Edward out of Dublin into the Wicklow Mountains, which had been used as a refuge by rebels for centuries. 
There, he was looked after by Dulcibella Barton, one of several siblings from the same family involved in the Republican movement. She cared for Edward at the family home at Animo near the medieval monastery of Glendalough. The several weeks he spent with the Bartons must have been a strange experience for Edward, who had grown up a child of the overcrowded tenements in Dublin. The Bartons not only lived in very different surrounds of rural Wicklow, but they were also wealthy landowners. Dulcibella later remembered his stay. Edward then came to our house in Animo and slept in the summer house in the garden, as the house was full. He got appendicitis and we had to get a doctor who sent him to hospital in Dublin in our car. The idea that the Barton's house was full, which probably meant that each bedroom had one occupant, or that Edward would have been somehow discommoded by the summer house, illustrated the varying backgrounds of activists within the Republican movement. Edward's entire family, his parents, along with his three siblings, shared a two-roomed flat in the Coombe, in a building that had been broken into 11 separate households. Having the summer house to himself would presumably have been a luxury. Indeed, this difference between the life of his family and the likes of the Bartons was underscored later in November when his father died in the South Dublin workhouse from bronchitis at the age of 47. Edward could not risk attending the funeral, although it's almost certain that he'd already left the country by this point. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. After spending the summer in Animo and then recovering from appendicitis, Edward was smuggled out of Ireland, initially to Liverpool in Britain, where he stayed for three days. However, he was still at risk of arrest, so he was moved on to New York. There, a powerful Irish Republican movement would support him for the coming years, far from the reach of the British authorities. Meanwhile, Edward would throw himself into activism in New York, helping to organise weapons shipments back to Ireland alongside senior Republicans such as Liam Mellows and Harry Boland, both of whom we will meet later in the series. While this brought Edward's direct involvement in the war to an end and he wouldn't return to Ireland until 1922, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on the murder of Inspector Mills, the first member of the Crown Forces killed by a Republican in Ireland since the Easter Rising. From a modern perspective, you might expect the murder of a policeman in such circumstances to cause tensions and even divisions within the Republican movement. However, Ireland, and indeed the wider world, was a very different place in 1917. Mills had, from a Republican perspective, manhandled an elderly and respected figure, and Edward had just sprung to his defence. Aside from this, the volunteers, who were growing rapidly, 
were a military organisation, after all, preparing for a military conflict. They had been shaped by their experience of the 1916 Rising, a violent revolt against the British authorities which had been brutally suppressed. This shaped the movement's understanding of the world. Indeed, they were very clear about their commitment to the principle of arms struggle. When Eamon de Valera had campaigned in the Clare East by-election in that same summer, covered in last week's episode, he did so in the uniform of the Irish Volunteers. When he argued the time was not right for another uprising, he vehemently defended his actions during the Easter Rising. Further to this, the late 1910s was also an extremely violent period in history. In 1916, deaths of men between 16 to 20 had increased by nearly 400% and in the age cohort of 20 to 24, it had increased by 825% due to First World War casualties. The Ulster Division, comprised of Irish Unionists, had more or less ceased to exist when they suffered over 5,000 casualties on the first two days of the Battle of the Somme. Therefore, Edward Murray's murder of Inspector Mills was not seen in the same way that it might be perceived in societies like ours with very low homicide rates. Indeed, the Irish volunteers were in no way impeded by the murder of Mills, and they continued to flex their strength as Ireland was becoming increasingly tense. On July the 9th, 1917, a month after the killing of Mills, the Republican activist Muriel McDonough drowned in a tragic accident while swimming near the north Dublin town of Skerries. Her stature was similar to that of Count Plunkett, and her death was enhanced by the fact she was not only the widow of the executed 1916 leader, Thomas McDonough, but had died while on a holiday for Republican widows. At her funeral held three days later on July the 12th, 4,000 Irish volunteers marched behind the coffin from the pro-cathedral to Glasnevin Cemetery in a massive show of strength. The growing resentment towards the British authorities was fuelled just two weeks later when on July the 27th, another veteran of the 1916 Rising, the Socialist Republican William Partridge, died in Balahadrine, County Mayo. Partridge, who was a popular figure in Dublin due to his prominent role in the 1913 lockout, had been imprisoned after the 1916 Rising. However, he had become gravely ill due to the poor prison conditions which directly had led to his death. His passing drew national attention, not least because Eamon de Valera and Countess Markievicz had, by chance, been addressing a meeting in Balahadrine on the day he died in the town. While tensions simmered away through that summer of 1917, it was the death of another Republican in horrific circumstances at the hands of the authorities later in September that proved to be a pivotal moment. The Kerry-born Thomas Ashe had led the most significant uprising outside Dublin during the 1916 Rising when he led rebels in the County Mead town of Ashburn to a significant victory over the authorities. Unable to hold out in a small town, Ash was eventually taken prisoner and served time in Dartmoor, Portland and Lewes prison until he was released under an amnesty in the summer of 1917. In Ireland, Ash immediately threw himself into activism, first campaigning in Eamon de Valera's successful election campaign in Clare East and then reorganising the volunteers across the Midlands. He was arrested in August 1917 for a speech he made the previous month and charged under the Defence of the Realm Act. However, on this occasion, Ash refused to recognise the authority of a British court when he was sentenced to prison and he continued this militant stance in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin. After being denied the status of a political prisoner by the governor, Ash went on hunger strike along with several other prisoners 
on September the 20th, 1917. Within three days, the prison authorities began the brutal practice of force-feeding him. This saw them force a tube down Ash's throat and pour food into his stomach. This was initially done by the prison medical officer, Raymond Dowdle. However, on the 23rd of the month, a doctor, William Lowe, was brought in to help Dowdle with his duties. Although he had no experience with the procedure, he force-fed Thomas Ash on September 25th and in a botched attempt, he pierced his lungs. Ash immediately collapsed and was removed from the jail to the Matter Hospital across the road. There, Thomas Ash, just 32 years of age, died a few hours later from heart failure and congestion of the lungs. This outraged not only Republicans, but the wider public. In late September 1917, his funeral turned into a major demonstration. Around 30,000 people, led by armed volunteers, paraded through the streets of Dublin to Glasnevin Cemetery. The scale of the funeral was immense. Dublin only had a population of 170,000 at the time. At the gravesite, the volunteers fired shots over the coffin and a rising star of the Republican movement, the 27-year-old Michael Collins, addressed the crowd in both Irish and English, saying, Nothing additional remains to be said. That volley which we have just heard is the only speech which is proper to make above the grave of a dead Fenian. While this was the last major flashpoint that year, there was no question that Ireland was a changed place. Militant republicanism was on the march. Sinn Féin had scored four by-election victories and the volunteers had transformed into a national organisation. Before we look at the upsurge in violence in 1918, it's worth clarifying the sometimes confusing and complex relationship between the two organisations, Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers. Although the membership of both organisations overlapped at every level, the Volunteers and Sinn Féin remained two distinct organisations with different roles. One was a political party and the other a military organisation. However, while they were not formally connected, the two were not entirely separate either. This complex relationship between the two played out at a Sinn Féin Ordesh or Congress held on October 26th, 1917 in Dublin. Attended by 2,000 delegates, this saw Eamon de Valera elected president of Sinn Féin and the party formally adopted a more radical programme which committed them to an independent republic. The following day, another secret meeting took place at Croke Park, a Gaelic games ground in Dublin city centre. This was a convention of the Irish Volunteers. At this meeting, Eamon de Valera was also elected as president of the Volunteers. While it might appear the two organisations, therefore, were different in name only, this was not an accurate representation of the situation. Indeed, a large degree of the day-to-day control of the Volunteers, due to resolutions passed at this secret convention, fell into the hands of a new body, the resident executive based in Dublin and dominated by Michael Collins, Richard Mulcahy and Dick McKee. This was renamed the General Headquarters Staff in March 1918 as the Volunteers were slowly transforming into an organisation known to history as the Irish Republican Army or IRA. The complex and at times strained relationship between Sinn Féin and the Volunteers would remain a constant feature of the Republican movement throughout the War of Independence. If all this seems unclear, that's because it was to a certain degree at the time. Perhaps it can be best explained by stating while they both shared similar goals and independent Ireland, they were different. Sinn Féin as a political party was to one extent or another focused on public opinion. Meanwhile, the Volunteers, a military organisation, was less concerned about public opinion and some of their military actions would prove deeply unpopular. 
Indeed, the first murder of 1918 was a case in point. While they were developing impressive military structures, one key element the volunteers lacked as a military organisation was weapons. While plans were afoot to import large shipments of guns, individual units began to look to local sources. This led to a particularly tragic incident in January 1918. Henry Sheehan, a native of Silvermines in North Tipperary, a serving British Army soldier, had been allowed to return home on furlough for a few weeks. When Sheehan arrived home, he had his rifle with him, and on hearing this, local volunteers in the area saw the potential. It would be easy to rob the gun given Sheehan was staying with his elderly parents. Late one evening, three masked volunteers raided the house. After threatening Sheehan's mother, a struggle broke out with George, his 78-year-old father. He was shot and killed as the volunteers made off with the rifle. This was the first of multiple incidents in the coming months as violence began to erupt in fits and starts as Ireland drifted into war. On February the 24th, 1918, a volunteer, John Ryan, was shot and killed by the Royal Irish Constabulary in a protest against a local landowner which saw poorer tenants drive away his cattle herd. The following month on St. Patrick's Day, 1918, a unit of volunteers in County Kerry raided Irie's RIC barracks, successfully making away with four Lee Enfield rifles and ammunition. A month later, on April the 13th, 1918, in East Kerry, volunteers planned a similar raid on the remote Gertalee barracks between Tralee and Castle Island. The aim of the raid was similar to that at Irie's, to seize weapons. When the volunteers arrived, there were only two constables inside the barracks who surrendered immediately. However, unfortunately, while the volunteers were inside the building, two more constables, who had been on a patrol in the surrounding area, returned. Realising what was happening, they opened fire from outside the building. Two volunteers, John Brown and Richard Lade, were fatally wounded. A month later, one of the policemen who had opened fire, a Sergeant Fallon, was shot in retribution, although he did survive the attack. While these actions created a sense that Ireland was sliding into chaos, this was dwarfed by the wider, escalating political situation when the British Army tried to introduce conscription into Ireland. At the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, recruitment to the British Army, aided by leading home rule politicians such as John Redmond, had been impressive. However, although nearly 150,000 Irishmen had enlisted since the outbreak of the conflict, this was still well below what the War Office in London had hoped for. By 1918, the army in continental France was facing a major manpower crisis. The USA had entered the war, but large numbers of US soldiers would not reach Europe until the summer. Indeed, the Germans had realised this presented them with a unique opportunity to defeat France and Britain before US might might be brought to bear on the situation. In March 1918, they launched what was known as the Kaiserschlacht, or their Spring Offensive, in the hope of ending the war quickly. This created a major crisis, and as the German armies began to advance, the British were so desperate they began to draw plans to evacuate their forces from the continent. Desperate for troops, the government of David Lloyd George concocted a scheme of extending conscription to Ireland. He did so without consulting Dublin-based civil servants, the police or the chief of staff of the army in Ireland, all of whom agreed that any attempt to force Irishmen into the army would result in major upheaval and bloodshed. Irish people would have chosen to die in Ireland rather than serving in the British army on the Western Front. In a ham-fisted attempt to improve the situation, Lloyd George, rather than back down, then offered home rule to entice Irish people into the army. 
This would only serve to finish off the moderate home rulers who, although they opposed conscription, had been seen as supporters of the war since they had backed the call to fight in 1914. The whole situation also served to fuel hostility towards the British army and create an increasingly sympathetic environment for the Republican movement. Despite opposition from across the spectrum in Ireland, the British Parliament passed the Military Service Bill on April 16th, 1918, which increased the military age in Britain to 51 and, crucially, extended conscription to Ireland. Even while the measures were being debated, it was clear they would be resisted in Ireland. The trade union movement, whose members would bear the brunt of these measures, began to mobilise workers in opposition. On April the 14th, 10,000 workers in Belfast, where support for the war had been highest, turned out in a protest organised by the Irish Trade Union Congress. Four days later, on April the 18th, at a meeting in Dublin hosted by the city's Lord Mayor, Lawrence O'Neill, representatives from Sinn Féin, the Home Rule Party, along with representatives of the Labour movement, discussed a unified opposition. Two days later, the Irish Trades Union Congress gathered and the 1,500 delegates voted for a general strike on Tuesday, April the 23rd, to oppose conscription. However, even before the strike could begin, tens of thousands of women signed a pledge stating they would not fill jobs of men if they were forced into the army. The pledge was signed throughout the country on April 21st, as well as during a day known as Law on the Mon, or Women's Day, on June the 9th, organised by Common the Mon, the Women's Republican Organisation. On April the 23rd, the trade union general strike began and nearly the entire country shut down. The Cork Examiner reported, In short, the commercial and industrial life of the city was, for one whole day, at a standstill. In Dublin, the Irish Times noted, Yesterday, no manner of work was done in Dublin or in the rest of Ireland outside northeast Ulster. Northeastern Ulster, around Belfast, had become increasingly divided over the issue of conscription. The alignment of the anti-conscription cause with the Republican movement and the Catholic Church alienated Protestant and Unionist workers, so the strike never gained a foothold in Belfast. However, across the rest of the island, hundreds of thousands of workers had walked off the job in protest against conscription. The British authorities were clearly losing control over the country and, having learned nothing over the previous two years, reacted in the worst way possible. On April the 25th, internment without trial was introduced. Then, on May the 17th, large numbers of senior Republicans were arrested after being accused of involvement in something called the German Plot which alleged another Republican uprising was in the offing with the support of the German Empire. No evidence was ever produced, but it was used as a pretext to arrest leading Republicans and deport them to prisons in England. On June the 15th, 13 counties were declared special military areas where all public meetings were banned. On July the 4th, the Volunteers and Common Amman were also banned. The reaction was predictable. When a by-election was called in Cavan, Arthur Griffith, the founder of Sinn Féin, who was in prison in England, was put forward as a candidate and easily took the seat. From the point of view of the authorities, this had all been for nothing in the end. The arrival of large numbers of American troops into Europe in the summer of 1918 saw the British authorities drop the whole debacle, which had been an unmitigated disaster. It had only served to unify several strands of Irish society and the trade union movement, who had suffered a major defeat back in 1913, had regained its confidence. In August 1918, Nearly 20,000 workers in Dublin went on strike over wages in the city. This included a munitions factory, which had been banned from striking since 1915. 
while there was a growing sense that Ireland was spiralling out of control. Remarkably, fatalities that summer were low. One notable exception was the death of the Republican activist Josephine McGowan, who died in Dublin a few days after she'd been badly beaten by the police at a demonstration for Republican prisoners. As winter 1918 approached, it was increasingly clear that World War I was coming to an end. The German spring offensive had enjoyed initial successes but failed to knock Britain or France out of the war. As US troops began to flood into Europe, this spelled the beginning of the end for the German Empire. Indeed, at home, the German people could not continue to sustain the deprivations of war and major strikes developed into a full-blown revolution by November 1918. The German authorities had no option but to sue for peace and on November the 11th at 11am, World War I ended when the two sides signed an armistice. In the United Kingdom, of which Ireland was still part, an election was immediately called. There hadn't been a general election since 1910. When Ireland went to the polls in December 1918, the results would reflect the massive changes that had swept through the country over the previous decade. Indeed, within a few weeks of the election, the War of Independence, if it had not already started, would formally begin. So the next episode will take us through that election campaign and then into South Tipperary to a place called Solohead Beg, where the war began. This episode will be available in two weeks' time. Next week, I'll be hosting the first Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley, Trinity College, Dublin. This is exclusively available to listeners who have signed up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. If you want to participate in the Q&A, you can sign up now at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I'll be back with episode four in the series in two weeks time. Until then, Sloan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.